DW Living Planet with Charlie Shield. At what point does our obsession with the tropical paradise escape become unhealthy? Today, we head to Hawaii to hear how tourists' infatuation with a dreamy island getaway is steadily eroding the archipelago, driving local people, flora and fauna to extinction. Think about people who enjoy the beach, the ocean, the traditional Hawaiian sports of surfing or canoe paddling, hiking in our mountains. Climate change is a humongous threat to that. Essentially, it's an artwork that has taken millions of years to develop over time in this very complex manner that has no way to be replaced. We have a decade or two to completely redesign our communities. And later, how South African scientists are trying to protect nearly 200 species of sharks from disappearing off the country's coast. By changing the mindsets, I believe that uh, I am changing the world one step at a time or one kid at a time. Even if it's going to their families and teaching them why sharks are important, we're already um, making such a big difference. That's all coming up on Living Planet. So stick around. When you hear the word Hawaii, most people conjure a similar image in their mind. Something along the lines of white sand and peacock blue water, grass skirts and coconut palms swaying in the breeze. It's true, Hawaii is beautiful. And it's also home to important, diverse ecosystems, like lowland dry forests, wetlands, lakes, marshes, swamps and estuaries, stony deserts and, of course, coral reefs. But behind the postcard images of a lush tropical escape, the Hawaiian archipelago is hurting. In 2019, around 3 million tourists visited the island nation, which has a population of just 1.4 million people itself, only 10% of which are native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders. Tourists outnumber locals year-round. And they also tend to enjoy unfettered access to vital resources such as water and energy that local residents are forced to ration. Katarina Wilhelm has this first story from the Hawaiian Islands, presented by Ben Ressler. The north coast of the island of Oahu is a legendary surf spot. Huge waves break here. It's a surface dream. But those waves are slowly becoming a nightmare for people who live near the beach. Dane Sims is one such resident. Lying on the beach, his baseball cap pulled over his face. He says his neighbor's house fell victim to the ocean's pull. This one completely fell in the ocean, and we, they dragged it back up. Sims shows dramatic pictures of a yellow house that had been pulled halfway into the sea. Almost all the houses that stand here on Sunset Beach have an incredible view of the Pacific. But more recently, the view has been altered by sandbags that residents have stacked in front of their properties, some have even poured concrete walls to keep out the waves, despite this being illegal, Sims says. They won't let you really do anything on the beach because technically the beach isn't your property. So people try to stage it and put up tarps and things as much as they can to help with the erosion. But I say if it continues like this in another five to ten years, I don't think any of these houses will be here. Erosion, sand and sediment wearing away is a major problem. 
especially on the northern side of the Hawaiian island, where the waves are most violent. Some residents are still trying to sell their houses, homes worth between one and a half and five million US dollar. Sim says it's scary, but he still feels safe. His house, which he owns with his father, is in the second row. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, I mean, there, you could sit here and kind of watch, and that's about it, and hope and pray that your house doesn't <laughs> end up in the ocean. At the University of Honolulu, experts are researching the consequences of climate change in Hawaii. This includes sea level rise and coastal erosion. Geoscientist Chip Fletcher, wearing a blue Hawaiian shirt, says he's been warning of the dire consequences for years. One of the things about the Hawaiian Islands and the Pacific tropics in general is that we are going to see more than the global mean sea level rise, uh, on the order of 10 to 20 percent more sea level rise here than the global mean. But we've also noticed that uh, the water table under our communities rises and falls with the tides in the ocean. And the further you get away from the ocean, the more lag there is in the water table response to the tides in the ocean. So if the water tables under our communities uh, feel the tide in the ocean, they are certainly going to feel the global warming effects on the ocean. And so as the ocean rises due to global warming, the, the water table will rise as well. And um, what is created when the water table breaks out on the land surface, it's a wetland. And so we will have wetlands forming in urban areas, in developed areas, uh, under roads, uh, which, of course, none of these communities were designed to be in the middle of a wetland. And first, these wetlands will only occur at the highest tides of the year for about an hour, and then they'll disappear because they are driven by the tides. But over the course of a decade or two, we will see these, uh, these wetlands um, arrive and last more frequently and then last longer and longer. The scientists are concerned that the city's infrastructure is threatened with severe flooding becoming more frequent. That's because the sewer system isn't designed to handle that kind of water. And these are not problems that lie far in the future, Fletcher said. In Hawaii, we don't need to convince people of global warming. People understand global warming. We need to convince them that sea level rise is a high magnitude immediate problem. They still see it as someplace in the future. They see it as a problem for the end of the century. So uh, that's the current job scientists have in Hawaii is convincing people that we have a decade or two to completely redesign our communities. Sea levels are rising and islanders can expect even more extreme weather events says climate scientist Ryan Longman, also of the University of Honolulu. He's evaluating data from past decades and looking at future models. The general consensus is that uh, tropical storm events will get more intense. There may be fewer of them, but the ones that do happen could be more intense. That's what happens on land. Animals and plants living underwater are particularly suffering from what Fletcher calls marine heat waves. They are occurring over 80% more frequently than they occurred 50 years ago. There have been lots of studies of marine heat waves. And so when we get a marine heat wave that occurs in Hawaii, we see lots of coral bleaching. The water column becomes an environment where the only organism that can really survive and even thrive is invasive algae. 
global warming could cause sea levels around Hawaii to rise by as much as a meter by 2050. One popular beach is likely to be affected. Waikiki Beach is the birthplace of modern surfing. The city of Honolulu lies right beside it. But sea level rise could turn the city into a giant wetland. This would actually mark a step back in time, because the city of Honolulu was once exactly that, an enormous wetland. But when Hawaii and with it Honolulu were annexed by the United States in 1898, the area was dried out and modern buildings were erected. Today, some hotels are 120 meters high and stand right at the water's edge. Millions of people come here every year for a vacation. Tourism is Hawaii's most important source of income. Dolan Eversol of Waikiki Beach Management says the Dream Beach has tangible financial value for Hawaii. A group of economists at the university estimated the value of Waikiki Beach to be $2 billion a year to the local economy. Eversol is a coastal geologist who uses scientific research to find out what the effects are on the Hawaiian economy, especially for hotels and resorts. He stands by an old concrete wall, a breakwater that allows waves to crash far offshore, generating a kind of natural swimming pool. Small children in particular splash around in the water here. Eversol points out to the sea, where tons of sand are already being dredged up from the bottom to be dumped on the beaches to maintain them. For the most part, it's fair to say all the beaches in Waikiki are chronically eroding, meaning they erode a little bit each year. And if we were to do nothing, or if we were to just keep doing what we're doing now, they would eventually erode to nothing. The waves don't only carry the sand away on the south side, they also carry it back to the beach. If artificial breakwaters are in place, that can't happen, and the beach just sinks into the sea. All of this is a major challenge and extremely expensive. The project will probably cost several million US dollars. But in the end, it pays for itself, Eversol says. There are so many jobs and so much industry here in Waikiki that maybe you're not right on the beach, but you are a restaurant three blocks back. You still will benefit from having a healthy, intact beach that tends to attract people. Tourism is the most important source of revenue for Hawaii. At the same time, it's also one of the biggest problems for nature, residents, and even the beaches, says Eversol. There's too many people on the beach. And that's in part because the beaches are getting smaller, but it's also um, reflective of the fact that we have an ever-increasing number of visitors coming to the state. And everyone who visits Hawaii has to get on a plane, leaving a huge carbon footprint. So is Hawaii creating its own tourism problems? It's a tricky question even for Ilya Johnson of the Tourism Authority. The smiling bearded man in the green Hawaiian shirt is a native Hawaiian. For him, the question of what the future of the island looks like with tourism and climate change is also very personal. There are multiple reasons, but one of the most important is our precious environment. Think about people who enjoy the beach, the ocean, the traditional Hawaiian sports of surfing or canoe paddling, hiking in our mountains. Climate change is a humongous threat to that. More importantly though, climate change is an existential threat to future generations, to people like my daughter, their children who will come after them, and the generations to come after that. Because our parents, our grandparents, those who came before them, 
took very special care to pass these islands to us in a certain uh, condition. And so who are we to hand that to our children in any less of a condition? One goal would be to have fewer tourists, but to make the same amount of money. And these visitors should treat nature and natural resources with respect. The Tourism Authority aims to promote regenerative tourism. This includes, for example, limiting the number of visitors to nature sites or asking tourists to clean trash off the beaches. But despite these factors, Hawaii does not want to impose an upper limit or put a stop to tourist numbers at the moment. If you want to see untouched nature on the island of Oahu, you have to go up pretty high. Around an hour from Honolulu are the Waianae Mountains, and then climb up around an hour on foot along cliffs, steep walls and rotten stairs, up to the summit, over a thousand meters high. The site is not open to the public, so that nature can remain untouched. Access is granted to scientists such as biologist Lucas Fortini. This here is, a, is one of the many Cyania species that we have here in Hawaii. And again, these, these plants as a group, they arrived here about 13 million years ago. Fortini points to a plant with a long slender trunk and delicate fine leaves growing out of the crown. When it blooms, it develops a purple trumpet-like flower. This plant is only found here in Hawaii, he explains. We have you know, over a thousand uh, plant species here that occur nowhere else in the world. And these places such as these are actually like their last standing ground or refuge for them. It's a refuge because large parts of Hawaii have been colonized by other non-native plants, some of which are spreading unchecked. These include bamboo, the bushy lampbush grass, and certain tree species, like the albizia, with its broad umbrella-like branches. All are beautiful to look at, but they crowd out the native and rare species on the island chain. You can almost watch the plant species disappear, Fortini says. There's over 250 plant species that uh, are unique to Hawaii here that have less than 50 individual plants in the wild. He adds that rising global temperatures are putting additional pressure on the remaining plants and animals. For example, some species were no longer comfortable closer to the sea level because it was too warm there. They migrated upwards, but there's limited space on Hawaii's mountain ranges. Introduced species such as rats or feral pigs and other animals also eat the native plants. On top of that, there are often droughts, which in turn encourage wildfires. He believes protecting this native flora and fauna is a critical task for society. We value art, we value jewelry, we value music. We are able as a, uh, as a society to understand how a work of art has its intrinsic value. We as a biologist, when we look at a species here in Hawaii that has been here again for 13 uh, million years hanging on these islands, for us it's even a more valuable thing which because essentially it's an artwork that has taken millions of years to uh, develop over time in this very complex manner that has no way to be replaced. For native plants, creativity is also needed to protect them. For example, by collecting plant seeds. 
Jody Rosem of the conservation organization Hawaiian Wildlife Fund, along with other volunteers, collects seeds from native plants every two weeks. She explains more over video call. Whenever there is a natural disaster, like here we have a lot of fires, fires sweep through the coastline, and then we have that seed, we, we bank our seeds. So we send them to a seed bank in Kona, and they're able to store our seeds there. So the seeds are a backstop against climate change and aggressive non-native plants. The project is now set to grow even larger. We just got a got a research permit to collaborate with um, an Ohia seed collection, which Ohia is our dominant tree in the state, and we're losing it a lot to a fungal pathogen. The Hawaiian Wildlife Fund staff aren't just collecting seeds, though. They are also collecting another major threat to Hawaii, plastic trash. Drifting between Hawaii and Japan is the largest plastic vortex in the world, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. A lot of trash ends up on the beaches of the Hawaiian Islands from there. As Stacy Brining, also from the Hawaiian Wildlife Fund, explains. When you walk out there, it seemingly looks clean. But as you squat down and get lower to the ground, you can see that the microplastics are really ambiguous in that environment. They're everywhere. You could spend a 10 by 10 little zone sifting that stuff out of the sand. The microplastics are small, but particularly dangerous. They end up in fish stomachs, and from there in the stomachs of larger animals, or on our plates. So the plastic comes from the sea, but also from the island itself. Moreover, since China no longer accepts as much plastic waste from Western nations as it used to, the U.S. is also left with much more plastic. It's a really big overwhelming problem and, it, and a lot of times it can freeze people into inaction because it feels like pushing wet spaghetti up a hill you know and and also being mindful like we are an island whatever you bring to this island as far as trash goes it's going to stay here and we only have we have a finite amount of space to store trash at some point we're going to have to get really creative with what we're going to do with all of it once our landfills are full artist matty larson has found one approach to solving the problem this is good because purple's very rare. <laughs> Turning plastic waste into artful everyday objects. In her studio on Hawaii's Big Island, she has bags of plastic lying around. Plastic waste that would normally be thrown away. Companies or even clinics drop it off for her. She pulls out a selection. Kidney dialysis clinics use the sh get the shrink wrap around their pallets of medicine. Snorkel boat tour companies use these as ice bags to bring ice to their boats. Farms. Everything comes to the farms. Everything comes to Hawaii wrapped and shipped in different plastics. She has several methods for shredding and melting the plastic. And we do this by hand using like pizza cutters, so sharp rotary cutters. Oh, actually, that was good. So this is the um, that that bounty, and so we shredded it down, and then it's going to be sprinkled with some clear plastics here, and then we're going to run them through our heat presses until they're thick enough to cut and sew. The result is a kind of plastic leather, translucent with yellow, red and blue sprinkles. Larson uses it to sew purses and bags, but there are also magnets and earrings she punches out of the newly mixed together plastic scraps. They are mostly adorned with Hawaiian motifs, for example, turtles and pineapples. Turning trash into something useful is one mission of her small business called Upcycle Hawaii. But she says she's more interested in talking to her customers about the big problem with plastic. To me, it's an existential crisis. And the fact that we throw away something that's going to outlive us on this planet is mind-blowing. But the mass of trash is simply too large to all be turned into jewelry. 
Not all plastic is fit to be recycled either, because some of it is too toxic. Larson would love it if there was simply no more plastic waste, and she became unemployed. You know that would be, you know, the best. Plastic and climate change are certainly linked. The burning of plastic waste alone, which is made from crude oil, causes the emissions of tons of CO2, which is a greenhouse gas harmful to the climate. Even if all emissions were stopped immediately, some level of climate change is already locked in due to decades of burning fossil fuels. That can't be changed, but future harm can be reduced and slowed down. Reflecting on this inaction, geoscientist Chip Fletcher expresses his frustration. All of these problems should have been dealt with 20 to 40 years ago, not just the ones we're talking about in Hawaii, but climate change and global warming writ large. And so the United States is still struggling with this, still. And we may very likely have a new president in two years who, who denies the reality of climate change. One of the organizations looking for solutions beyond U.S. policy dictated in Washington D.C. is the Hawaii Climate Commission, an organization of politicians, scientists, and citizen advocates. Leah Laramie is the commission's coordinator. One goal is for Hawaii to set its own climate targets. What's really great about codifying climate change into law is that it's harder to change that out. So it doesn't matter who our leader is; it, we still have to achieve these goals, and we still have to meet these requirements. Laramie stresses that a lot of work needs to be done to make Hawaii ready to withstand the effects of climate change. Moving roads, piling sand, restoring sand dunes are all part of that. But some communities would also have to think about moving to higher ground. We have certain communities that are really having to think of: you know, are we able to stay here? Or do we have to think about moving out of? The way of the rising seas. That has implications for anyone looking to buy a nice home on the coast. Which means that whenever you buy a property, you has to be disclosed whether it will be impacted by sea level rise. So、um, it's a great way to get people that are maybe not so in tuned in the conversation to realize、um, when you, you're purchasing a, a property, you know, if there's going to be that risk. This then probably also applies to the houses with dream views of the north side of the island in Oahu, on Sunset Beach, where Dane Sims also has his house, in the second row back from the ocean. Though maybe not for long, he jokes. But、um, we've all, me and my dad, who have the house here, we've always kind of joked, especially the last like ten years, that sooner or later we'll have beachfront. That story from Katarina Wilhelm was told by Ben Ressler. Far from Hawaii, on the southeastern coast of the African continent, the country of South Africa is also on a mission to protect its wild marine species. Almost 200 species of shark inhabit the underwater kelp forests and ocean ecosystems off South Africa. That might sound incredibly frightening, but. Much like wolves, lions, and whales, sharks are invaluable apex predators. They're vital for the whole ecosystem to function. Jason Boswell and Franz Venker spoke to scientists and educators in South Africa about the ways they're trying to conserve and better understand sharks. Their report is told by Evelyn McClafferty. A migrating blue shark glides elegantly through the cold waters off the South African coast. 
They are frequent visitors here, and so are the funny-looking puff-adder shy sharks and gully sharks, which are native to South Africa's underwater kelp forest. The brown seaweed that grows here are home to more than 200 shark species. Shark expert Ryan Daly often monitors the shark's activities. He looks across the water underneath a cap that protects him from the sun while cruising along the water on a boat, constantly on the lookout for shark fins poking out of the water. To conserve sharks, we need to know where they go, where they spend time. So we are tagging these sharks to figure out where they go and identify critical habitat for them so that we can improve protection for these critical areas. All right, let's get the shark measured. Once they spot a shark, he and his team fit them with acoustic transmitters so they can track them, a procedure the animals barely notice. They capture the animals, make a small incision with a needle, and presto, they are tagged and can go about their day. The transmitter now emits an ultrasonic pulse for six years. In the last couple of years, we've tagged over 100 sharks, representing about 10 or 12 different species. Many of these sharks are endangered, and we hope to find out more about where they go. Specifically, over multiple years, we hope to identify critical areas for them. In order to do so, the team relies on the help of divers who swim to the bottom of the ocean and attach receivers there. Over 150 receivers are anchored along the seabed, ready to detect the signals from the tagged sharks. Whenever one of them swims by, the receiver records its ID number. The signal range is up to one kilometre. The acoustic receivers are regularly brought onto dry land so the data they've logged can be evaluated by shark experts like Daly, who squints at the computer screen in front of him. A map shows the routes sharks have been swimming. We have to work with a big network of collaborators to share data on their receivers. So all of the data we collect on these receivers gets shared within a network and then we're able to figure out where these sharks have been where they're spending their time so that we can prioritise their conservation. The programme can only work so long as they've brought support for shark conservation efforts. That's where the Save Our Seas Shark Education Centre in Cape Town comes in. It aims to debunk myths around sharks and spread information about sharks. That's why it often invites school classes to teach young kids about the animals. From an early age, humans are often afraid of these ocean predators. Shark populations can only survive if public attitudes towards them changes, and that requires raising awareness, says Justine Schwartz, a senior educator at the centre. By changing the mindsets, I believe that uh, I am changing the world one step at a time or one kid at a time. For me, if I have a group of 40 learners and I'm changing the mindset of one child, even if it's going to their families and teaching them why sharks are important, we're already um, making such a big difference. You're seeing these four sharks for the first time in your life. You can't really see why they have been there. Okay? 
the media tends to report on sharks mainly when there have been attacks on humans. At the Shark Education Centre in Cape Town, children can learn about the valuable role they play in marine ecosystems and get up close to shark eggs and even teeth. This form of connection seems to be working. This actually changed my perspective on how they actually live and that they're not actually a danger to us, that we actually endanger them by polluting and by catching. Conservationists have also equipped an underwater camera with bait so they can observe smaller, shyer sharks that lurk in the kelp forest off the coastline. It lures them out of hiding, allowing the researchers to gain useful insights into ocean biodiversity. The collected data is analysed using a programme the team developed to help them assess their findings, explains CAPE researcher Dylan Irian. We've taken some open source machine learning software and trained it on hundreds of images of sharks and fish and all of the species that we come across here in False Bay so that we can use it for detecting these species in videos in the future. Their research has already proved highly constructive. There is now more public acceptance of shark conservation and conservation areas make up 5% of South Africa's oceans today. Environmentalists would like to see that area increase further in order to better protect marine ecosystems. And with that report, we come to the end of this week's edition of Living Planet. Thank you so much for listening. Today's episode was mixed and produced by Jürgen Kuhn, Elliot Douglas and me, Charlie Shield. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. 